Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. We're recording this on the 15th of June, 2022, on the 16th of June, 2022. And on the 15th, Chairman Jerome Powell announced a 75 basis point increase to some sort of rate that means something. And I'm going to read to Jeff the press conference transcript that Jerome Powell gave, and Jeff's going to react live to it. This is a short transcript, five pages. I'm not going to read all of it, but it's very tight in that it, it attacks four key messages. An overarching message then addresses overall economic activity, the labor market, inflation, and then one more message regarding why the big increase, the 75 basis point increase. And that'll be it. And then we'll get your opinion. Jeff, does that sound good? It sounds like a chore. <laughs> but, you know, I think it... A necessary one, given the fact that the Fed has made its splash headline, doing his best, as you've pointed out, Emil, to be Paul Volcker 2.0, to make sure that the public is absolutely aware the Fed is on top of this. We have a stepped pyramid of rate hikes up to, what is it, 75 basis points for the first time since 1994. So every last bit of hyperbolic headline that you could possibly come up with has been printed in the last couple of days all over the mainstream media, not even just the financial press. This is a big deal, what's being done at the Federal Reserve, which usually doesn't enter the narrative slipstream of the mainstream press. So this is big stuff. Let's see what Chairman Powell said. He had his meeting, then he came out to meet the press, and he started out by saying, good afternoon. I will begin with one overarching message. We at the Fed understand the hardship high inflation is causing. We are strongly committed to bringing inflation back down, and we are moving expeditiously to do so. We have both the tools we need and the resolve it will take to restore price stability on behalf of American families and businesses. Just don't ask what those tools or what's in the toolkit. Don't ask what the tools are. Just just be happy that we have them. We won't tell you what they are. We have the willingness and ability. Remember, that's basic economics, right? All demand is about willingness as well as ability. You have to have those two points. Now, what he says is they're willing, but what's in the toolkit, Jay? And the resolve, too, to your earlier point about Volcker and the Volcarian costume they're putting on right now to say the, there's incredible inflation rates, consumer price increases, like the 1970s. We had a hero that had the courage to act, raise interest rates, and we have that same resolve. Good thing we've been going over the Volcker myth, but that's maybe if you want to bring it up. Here's the final statement regarding this overarching message. From the standpoint of our congressional mandate to promote maximum employment and price stability, the current picture is plain to see. The labor market is extremely tight and inflation is much too high. Jeff, any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, labor market is tight according to, yes, the unemployment rate, or you look at, say, Jolt's job openings and they look fantastic, but what about everything else? All the rest of the labor market, the establishment survey, the supposed mainstream orthodox gold standard of labor market data is still about 800,000 jobs short of where it was in February 2020. We have not even regained all the jobs that were lost over what is now more than a two year period. That's an enormous period to be to have such even a small short, shortfall, let alone one that's 800,000 plus the five 
probably six million jobs that should have happened during that two plus year period that never did. So the U.S. economy is, by any reasonable and honest uh, analysis, somewhere around at least five million, if not six million, perhaps more jobs short of where it should be. And six million jobs, by the way, yes, we have, you know, 300 million, 300 plus million people in the country, but six million jobs is an enormous deficit, enormous deficit. We're talking great recession level of deficit. And yet we're, we're supposed to believe that this is full employment. This is inflationary full employment. It's, you know, it's something that we've talked about when you, Emil, you and I have, have researched and dealt with for years, this idea that the unemployment rate detached from the participation rate is somehow representative of the actual economy and the actual labor market when by every single other measure, it's just so obviously false. You can look at the unemployment rate and be happy about it, but we never want to use one single number. You never want to focus on one single thing. And if it's not corroborated by a wide variety of other statistics, markets, whatever data, then you have to be suspicious and skeptical. And to make such a conclusive determination based on that one thing is irresponsible at best, and I think more likely disingenuous. You're being generous with the five to six <laughs> million. Well, that too, but the five to six million shortfall in jobs that we are short as of right now. In some of your writings at the Alhambra Investments blog post, you have a chart where you show that had there been no recession or had there been a recession and we were still growing in the way we did after since the Second World War, whereby the recession happened and then we bounced back to the pre-existing trend, we would have made up all the ground loss plus what would have happened had there been no recession. Milton Friedman's plucking model, which we've discussed in previous shows. That five to six million number sounds like a lot, Jeff, but you weren't using growth rates that were rip-roaring and so healthy. You were using growth rates, I believe, the previous 18 months leading up to the COVID crisis or some, and then, I don't know, 2017, 2018, lousy, lousy economic growth rates. We have not made up the ground due to COVID or caught up to the lousy economy rate of growth that occurred before COVID. That's how far off we are. And that's how lost we've become, right? Because we're not even talking about making up the ground still left to be made up from 2008. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. far in the past, it's almost like, hey, it's forgotten times, even though that does matter to this day. So what we're saying is in, in Jay Powell's opening argument about the labor market, it doesn't pass any of the smell tests that we have. First of all, we haven't even recovered from the latest malodorous economic climate in 2020. We haven't even got there, let alone back to where we would be on the, on the as you said, the 2019 or 2017 trajectory, the prior trajectory. We haven't even come close to that, let alone anything more substantial and significant. You know, I keep going back to what Janet Yellen said in 2014. To me, Janet Yellen has been the best of the all prior uh, Federal Reserve chairman, because at least on occasion, she would let some honesty slip. And on this particular occasion in 2014, she said, you know, we keep looking at the unemployment rate and it's looking really good, but we have this participation problem. We've offered some kind of explanations for it. But, you know, I deep down, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but deep down, she was worried that maybe this participation problem represented what she called hidden slack. 
and you can't be at full employment if you have hidden slack. And if we had hidden slack in 2014, what kind of hidden slack might we have in 2022? Well, we don't need to, you know, there's no mystery here. Markets have told us what kind of hidden slack we've had. The data, act when you actually look at the data, honestly, you know what kind of hidden slack the American economy has. And it's not just an American problem. It's a global problem, too. So, but, you know, Jay Powell's got to say this because he's basing his entire rate hike case. As we said, what does he have in the toolkit? What he has in the toolkit is rate hikes and quantitative tightening, right? And rate hikes, you start to look at it and think, how is rate hikes going to solve the gasoline, oil, energy problem? How is rate hikes going to get containers back to China? How is rate hikes going to get more semiconductors out of Taiwan and into uh, U.S. cars made in Mexico, for example? Rate hikes aren't going to do that. So what Jay Powell has to do is he has to sell you, dear American, on the idea that this quote unquote inflation is largely due to a tight labor. He needs the Phillips curve in order to sell you this rate hike will cure inflation narrative. And so in order to do that, he's got to start out by saying the labor market must be incredibly tight because if it's not, then what the hell good are the rate hikes going to be? Mr. Powell then moves on to address overall economic activity. Overall economic activity edged down in the first quarter as unusually sharp swings in inventories and net exports more than offset continued strong underlying demand. Recent indicators suggest that real GDP growth has picked up this quarter with consumption spending <laughs> remaining strong. In contrast, I don't think that's true either, is it, Emil? Because no. recent, ex recent estimates, especially after the retail sales report this week, are now looking at the very real possibility that GDP in the second quarter will be slightly negative too. And today is the 16th, and I saw something about the Philly Manufacturing Index. Philadelphia factory. Yeah, that fell to a negative number. Yep. Unexpectedly contracts. And the negative number, Jeff, is extremely rare. It's It's been falling, but, but you know quite what, rare. As you talk about inventory, the, the real, the Philly Fed number in particular was the new orders uh, number, which went from like, I think it was positive 23 to minus 25. Some real utter, utter collapse. So, I mean, you know, but again, Powell has to say the economy's in good shape. He has to say, the labor market's doing well. Otherwise, because he's got to sell you this idea that all he's doing is alleviating your suffering from inflation. He's not trying to induce recession like Volcker. He even admitted that much. I think we'll get to that. All he's trying to do, at least what he's trying to tell the American public, and by extension, the rest of the people around the world, reassure markets, for example, is that all the Fed is going to do is take the edge off their inflationary pain. When any rational, any honest, any common sense analysis, how the hell is the Fed going to do that? So he has to present this case to you in a specific way. And as anybody, in, uh, anybody who's ever done any debating, anybody who has ever done any arguments knows, if your case depends upon these very finite idiosyncratic factors that you can only assemble in a certain fashion, you really don't have much of a case at all. It's paper. I'm thinking of the, you know, the, uh, the famous scene in the, the Joe Pesci movie, My Cousin Vinny, where he shows you the playing card and then mm -hmm. flips it on its side and you can see how thin it is. Mm -hmm. That's what Jay Powell is doing right now. That was a great scene. I love that. I love that movie. Wonderful. I laughed all the way throughout that wonderful movie. Classic. Yeah. It was Absolute classic. 
Excellent. Uh, well, let us continue then. In contrast, growth in business fixed investment appears to be slowing and activity in the housing sector looks to be softening, in part reflecting higher <laughs> mortgage <That's>, rates. <laughs> softening might be a little bit uh, terrible. Today, Jeff, U.S. housing starts fall from 16-year high. U.S. building permits drop 7%. Initial claims of unemployment benefits fell less than expected. But that's, let us continue with Jay Powell. Yeah, initial claims are still, I think that's a big one too. Mm -hmm. Labor market, jobless claims are on a rising trend, which is not a good sign. Even though they're at a historic low or near historic low, it's not the level. It's the change in direction. Well, the tightening in financial conditions that we have seen in recent months should continue to temper growth and help bring demand into better balance with supply. Now, moving on to the labor market. The labor market has remained extremely tight with the unemployment rate near a 50-year low, job vacancies at historical highs, and wage growth elevated. Over the past three months, unemployment ro employment rose by an average of 408 thousand jobs per month, down from the average pace seen earlier in the year, but still robust. Labor demand. Not according to the other survey, though, too, right? Because the households, while well, the establishment survey downshifted to a lower end, I mean, we could, we could have a whole show about the establishment survey and what they did over the last year, statistically smoothing that sucker out. So it's not mm -hmm. going to show you what you want. But still, the establishment survey is one. There's also something called the current population survey or the household survey that actually declined over a two-month basis, declined sharply in April, and then only rebounded partway in May, which is the first two-month decline since I think it was 2018. So two-month decline in the household survey is relatively rare, even among the weak labor conditions of the last 14 years or so. So that's already suggesting that, yeah, the establishment survey decelerated, and that's fine, you can point to that, but this other labor data, including jobless claims, the household survey, points to maybe something more significant than just, eh, we went from really good to maybe just possibly good. When you say decline, you mean went negative. So it wasn't decline from a higher high. decline. A negative. That was the shocking thing about April, because over the ever since 2020, this rebound, this reopening frenzy, you would expect jobs to start coming back and therefore... We would never expect something like the household survey, which is very noisy month to month. So you always have to pay attention to that. But even between 2020 and 20 up until April 2022, the household survey, even though it's up and down month by month, it hadn't been negative. There had been no decline in the household survey until April. And it wasn't a small decline either. It was, I think, 350,000 or so, which is a substantial decline. And then in May, only part of those came back. So over a two month period, so we're reducing the chances this is random statistical fluctuation. We have a negative, fewer jobs according to the household survey in May when compared to March. And these are not just random months either. Mm. Everything that we have been seeing, March, April, May, we have markets going all sorts of haywire crazy in March. We have gasoline prices spiking early. We've all uh, we've got Target warnings, Walmart warnings. We've got data, the Philly Fed, you said, all sorts of data around the world, China, Japan, Germany, April and May, and I think June, which are suggesting that this is more than your garden variety. Hey, it was great. Now it's going to be a little bit less great. Well, Mr. Powell disagrees. He says, quote, labor demand is very strong, although he does acknowledge while labor supply remains subdued with the labor force participation rate, little change since January. 
Moving on to inflation. Inflation remains well above our long-run goal of 2%. Over the 12 months ending in April, <laughs> well above. <laughs> total PCE prices rose 6.3%, excluding the volatile food and energy categories. Core prices rose 4.9%. In May, the 12 months change in the CPI came in above expectations at 8.6%, and the change in the core CPI was 6%. Aggregate demand is strong, supply constraints have been larger and longer lasting than anticipated, and price pressures have spread to a broad range of goods and services. The surge in prices of crude oil and other commodities that resulted from Russia's invasion of Ukraine is boosting prices for gasoline and food and is creating additional upward pressure on inflation. And COVID-related lockdowns in China are likely to exacerbate supply chain disruptions. Except that part isn't happening, though. We see that in container rates where reopening China was supposed to lead to a surge, a rush of ships going into the, the Chinese East Asia routes, and it didn't happen. And it looks like that demand, even for though that you know previously robust segment, is actually falling off, too. And when did it start falling off? When did these container rates from the China East Asia route to U.S. West Court start declining? March, April, May. Something happened in March. We know what happened in March, but something big changed in the U.S. economy, and it wasn't rate hikes. Well, let's see. What the big thing was, of course, the war started with Russia and Ukraine towards the end of February. But it was. It just seemed like the U.S. economy and the world economy slipped down faster. The rate of decline, the slope, the increased, and then it's just an acceleration. It's exactly what the markets have been predicting ever since last year. We yes. have an economy that never actually recovered in the United States or elsewhere around the world. Elsewhere around the world is worse off than the U.S. The U.S. at least had the appearance of recovery for a while. But what markets were saying was flattening curves and then inverted curves uh, along the way is that the probability that, for example, gasoline prices were going to go too high and trigger, as you said, Emil, a more averse reaction than before that's what the markets have been predicting all along. They said the probability was rising that something would go too far and trigger a, an outright shock, a recession shock, a backlash across the economy that would then lead to an outright economic contraction across a wide variety of the, the economic landscape, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. So that's what we've seen. We saw that in early March with that spike in oil prices, therefore gasoline prices, and they have not come down, which, you know, let's let's take the word of Target. Target said consumer spending changed. Something happened. So the markets were predicting the high probability that something would happen and it would lead to this eventual outcome. Now, Jay Powell can say the economy's fine all he wants because he has to say these things. He has to sell you on that case Otherwise, it all just kind of falls apart. And the markets were increasing their bet and certainty that something would happen, ratcheting up the concern they had. It started in February 2021. Then they put a few more chips into the middle of the table in May, a few more in October, more in December. And in March, they put even more. So they are confidently betting one direction, escalating their bet that we are heading towards a recession or financial crisis, something concerning, something bad. And they've known or it both. since February. Yes. Last year, February. You know, that's the thing. All these people, 
Yeah, the people who who like to dismiss these signals for euro dollar future example and say, well, that's just that's just people hedging. What? Well, yes, that's that's the point. And as we've said before numerous times, when you see something like the euro dollar futures curve, it takes enormous pressure to move that out of an upward sloping shape, and even more pressure, even more hedging demand. And not just hedging demand, but unwillingness of other people in the market to take the opposite side of that position. When the yield curve or the euro dollar futures curve inverts, what that says is consensus opinion in this massive marketplace is on the need to hedge. If you feel the need to hedge, it's, it's that's something you dismiss and say, oh, they're just hedging. Why are they hedging? What are they hedging for? And why is this enormous market feeling the, uh, agreeing with the fact that there is this requirement to hedge. And as you said, Emil, it's only gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, louder and louder and louder over time. So again, Jay Powell, Janet Yellen last week said she doesn't see anything about recession. Jay Powell Sheesh. says, I don't see it either. No slowdown. <laughs> There's nothing to indicate recession except the entire damn marketplace. <laughs> this is the last main point. This is the last point that Powell makes. Let me read it. And it's now addressing why did they increase rates? so fast, so much, such a big increase. Coming out of our last meeting in May, there was a broad sense on the committee that a half percentage point increase in the target range should be considered at this meeting if economic and financial conditions evolved in line with expectations. We also stated that we were highly attentive to inflation risks and that we would be nimble in responding to incoming data and the evolving outlook. Since then, the meeting, Inflation has again surprised to the upside. Some indicators of inflation expectations have risen, and projections for inflation this year have been revised up notably. In response to these developments, the committee decided that a larger increase in the target range was warranted at today's meeting. This continues our approach of expeditiously moving our policy rate up to more normal levels. <laughs> And it will help ensure that longer term inflation expectations remain well anchored at 2%. That's it for Jerome Powell, Jeff. Yeah, and I think the last part is important because he's basically admitted the Fed is wedded to the oil price because that's really what's going on. That's really what, uh, as I broke what down in the CPI over the last uh, four months between January and May, including May, uh, 40 some percent was due to just gasoline in the CPI bucket. So, what he's basically saying is that we got surprised by gasoline. We're going to follow. We're going to hike rates, not based on the economy, but based on how the oil price manufactures these incredibly distressful headlines for politicians. So the more gasoline is stubborn, the more the Fed has to continue its rate hikes, at least until, as the market's betting, the recessionary uh, developments are become too much to ignore. And then you'll see the Fed reverse course and go back down uh, to some level afterwards. In yester generation, oil prices increasing at such a rate would suggest the economy was doing very well. It was healthy. It needed energy to consume, to build, to manufacture. And therefore, you could use oil prices as a proxy. It was in the inflation rate. And therefore, you could use that as a proxy as maybe the economy is too hot. It's getting ahead of itself. And we need to dampen it. Okay. But that's not what's happening here, Jeff. We all know why the oil prices are surging. There's a war on and some countries are saying, well, we don't want the oil and natural gas from this country. So what? 
right. you know what I'm saying, Jeff. Why? Why? Yeah, why? There's a war on in Texas too. There's a war on in the shale country. The American producers aren't producing oil either. It's you know you're right because in certain periods of history you could see the demand for oil as a proxy for the oil price, but this time. It's not necessarily demand for oil that's moving the price. It's almost exclusively supply, yes. which breaks the correlation between all the other factors, including the U.S. dollar's exchange value. So oil is not a, a legitimate economic indication at this particular point in time, in which well, I can hear, I can, I can feel everybody's eyes rolling at the current moment. I can see everybody saying, who cares? Oil goes up. We don't care why it goes up. It's going up. Therefore, it's inflation. Because it's incredibly painful. It is a legitimate economic indication, a negative one. There's trouble. It's going to be difficult yeah. for the wider economy. It's just bizarre that it these was, people you know, go on. No, I was just going to say, sorry, Emil, it's, it's that it was predictable too. Because again, this is kind of what the market's been saying. When you have a supply shock, what that does is redistribute economic flow, economic resources, however you want to characterize it. From one section to another, and do so in what was what is likely to be a harmful fashion. You can't produce winners and losers based on these non-economic considerations and have it come out as a 1970s-style inflation. What ends up happening? You have an oil shock. You have a recession. Those two things kind of go together, and the market has been pricing ever since last year: oil shock, negative conditions in the monetary system, collateral shortage, all these things. Put them together. What do you get? You get a high probability that what we're seeing right now is going to happen, including the Fed doing its best to do the wrong thing. I don't understand. They're so highly credentialed, so well credentialed. Why do they res depend on these single variables that are used to explain or to remain constant, right? If the unemployment rate is low, that's a good thing always. No, the context has changed. Back then, it was a good sign. The labor force participation rate was increasing. A low unemployment rate suggested great things for the economy. Now, the opposite with the labor force participation rate. The context has changed. Same thing with oil. The Fed even has a wonderful model. I believe it's the New York Fed where they break down oil prices by demand and supply. Their own model is saying this is supply driven. All right. We're beating a horse deadly. You know the answer, though. The answer is narrative-based economics. They have a narrative they need to sell you, and then they, re they reverse engineer the evidence for that narrative. And so the narrative is, as we started out, Powell has to tell you that we have the tools because this is a specific problem that we have the tools to fix. And that specific problem is a tight labor market. Therefore, Phillips Curve we can fix the inflation problem, but only if you believe the economy is as the Phillips curve must make it. We just discussed and reacted to Jerome Powell's press conference introductory statement. Afterwards, he answered questions from the press. And in the next episode, we're going to put Jeff at the head of the Federal Reserve, and he's going to answer as a Euro dollar university chairman who happens to also chair the Federal Reserve. So stick around for that.